difficult days, that four-week series. All right? Okay? Okay. <laughs> want to know if you're still with me. So Matthew chapter 26, if you'll turn there. We'll start reading at verse 47. Father, we do ask that this morning that we be settled in our hearts and in our seats, that you're speaking to us through your word. It may be a portion of scripture that we're familiar with, but Lord, we have really entered into holy ground. Jesus willingly and freely going to the cross to die for our sins. We would have no reason to be here, to be worshiping, to be here to, to know that, Lord, there is a future and a hope that comes through you if, if Jesus had not gone to the cross and risen from the grave. It's a living hope. So I pray that we would be attentive to the things that you want to touch our hearts with through your word. This account, again, may be familiar to us, but, Lord, may it touch our hearts in a deeper way than ever before. And my prayer is, Lord, that we would have a desire to be taught by you, to be ministered through the word, to hear from you. And Lord, that we would leave this place just being at awe again at your wonderful provision, the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. So we give you this time in Jesus' name, amen. So as you recall, we opened up chapter 26 that Jesus, after he finished all these sayings, of course, the Olivet Discourse, chapters 24 and 25, when they had come to Jesus and asked him, what are the signs of your coming and what are the signs of the end of the age? And Jesus said, listen, take heed, don't be deceived. And he began to talk about sorrows, the birth pangs. There's going to be false teachers that will come on the scene. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be um, famines. There's going to be you know, different signs that are going to be taking place. Luke's gospel tells us perplexity of nations. Uh, there is going to be fearful signs in heaven, all these things that we're beginning to see even in our day. And he says it's, it's not the end, but it's the beginning of sorrows. It's the birth pangs. He would talk about persecution and the tribulation period. He said the tribulation period, there will be great tribulation, such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. But when I come back, every eye is going to see me because it will be with great power and glory like lightning flashing from the east to the west. And then Jesus would talk about how important it is for us to be watching, to be waiting, to be sober, to be alert, because I come at a time that you're least expected. I come at a time uh, and an hour that you do not know. And he would tell of a parable, the wedding feast, and, and telling us to be prepared for his coming. He would tell a parable of the talents, that we're to be good stewards of the things that have been entrusted to us. And that is the gospel, the, the gifts and opportunities that are given to us um, to invest in the kingdom of God. And then he ended that teaching with the judgment of the nations. And after these sayings, I'm going to be handed over in two days to the chief priests and the elders on Passover, and I'm going to be crucified. And the religious leaders, we know as the, the chapter has unfolded, have been planning and plotting to put Jesus to death. When you go to John's gospel, you get a sense, there's a, a sense of urgency for them to do that, that 
as Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead. They're in Bethany, just a couple miles from Jerusalem, uh, just right before this time that we're reading about. As Lazarus was in the grave for four days, in John chapter 11, Jesus would cry out, Come forth, Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. And the word began to spread at that incredible miracle. And the religious leaders hear of it. And they have a meeting. And they're thinking, we've got to put him to death. Because we're going to lose the authority that we have. Rome's going to crush us if they begin to follow after him. So we must put him to death very, very soon. But Matthew tells us that they're thinking, we can't do it during the feast. Because there would be an uproar of the people. And they're plotting and planning, thinking it won't be during the feast. Jesus said it will be during the feast because he's the Passover lamb of God who's going to die on Passover and and die for the sins of the world. And keep in mind this, as we look at all of this, that Jesus is the one that's in control. That in John's gospel, before he enters into the garden, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, as we saw last week, he would stop and he would pray, that priestly prayer of John chapter 17. And he prays to the Father, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Jesus had said in John chapter 10 that no one takes my life from me, but I lay down my life. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. So Jesus is in control here. And we know that God had determined that he would die on Passover. Again, uh, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And Jesus, as he spends this last moment with his disciples, he celebrates Passover with them. We saw that Judas would go to the religious leaders for the purpose of betraying Jesus. What will you guys give me if I deliver him into your hands? We'll give you 30 pieces of silver. And as they celebrate Passover, the disciples, they don't understand what's going on. They're confused. They come into that upper room. Luke's gospel tells us disputing, not just discussing, but disputing who's the greatest in the kingdom. Because they're still expecting Jesus to usher in the kingdom of God. And Jesus would wrap himself with a towel, gird himself with a towel. He would wash the feet of the disciples, and he said, what I have done is an example for you. You want to be great in the kingdom? Then you are to humble yourself, and you are to serve others. Jesus would institute the Lord's Supper, as we saw. He said, one of you is going to betray me. They didn't know that it was Judas. The disciples are going, is it I? And then all of you are going to be made to run away because of me this night. And he quoted from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And Peter, of course, as we saw last time, he piped up and he said, not me, Lord, I'll stand by you. I'll die for you. These other guys may run away, but not me. I'm committed. I'm going to stand firm. And we know that as Jesus would say to him that, Peter, that you're going to deny me not once, but three times before the night is over. And we're going to see that at the end of the chapter. But Jesus would then leave that upper room with his disciples. They would make their way across the city of Jerusalem. And as they would make their way to the garden, as we saw last week, he tells his disciples, you guys wait here while I go over there and pray. James, John, and and Peter. And he comes back and he finds them sleeping. 
He said that, you know, uh, couldn't you have not watched with me for one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he found them sleeping three times. He went away and he prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Three times he came back and he found them sleeping. And we ended last time with uh, the... Troops coming to arrest Jesus in verse 46. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And I imagine Jesus, as the disciples are sleeping, that he could see those soldiers coming. He could see them uh, coming from a long distance, coming and coming across the brook Kedron up into the Garden of Gethsemane, which was on the side of the Mount of Olives. Kind of interesting. As they would cross the Kedron, Jesus crossed that brook, and Kidron means dark, it means murky. And at this time of Jesus, it was a small water brook that flowed through the valley between the temple and where the Mount of Olives was. When we go to Israel, we show you the brook Kidron. And the reason that they called it the Kidron, dark, murky, the brook flowing in the spring with water, and now with it being Passover, the city is crowded. All the pilgrims are coming in and the people bring in their, and buying their sacrifices for Passover. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that the Romans at, at, around this time, they wanted to take this census of how many people were coming into the city during this particular feast. And the reason was is because it would help them plan if there was any kind of uprising, if there was any sort of insurrection, that they would have enough troops to be able to squash it. And the governor is Pontius Pilate. We know that he's governor at this time. And it is interesting, a little side note, that for, for a long time, liberal scholars said there's no record of Pontius Pilate. There's no record of Pontius Pilate. He didn't exist. And over in Caesarea, which is on the seacoast, you can go there today. And it was kind of the Roman headquarters of that area. They had the amphitheater. That's where Paul gave his testimony in the book of Acts before Agrippa. And we know that Herod the Great had built a a place there, a a residence there. He had pools and, and, and all these things. He was a great builder. And you can go and see the ruins of that today. They've excavated some of it. But as they were doing that in the 1960s, they found this stone. And on this stone was engraved on it, Governor Pontius Pilate. So we know that Pilate, that he did exist. He was governor. And what he would do is probably stay at Caesarea, because it's very beautiful there, right on the coast of the Mediterranean, kind of like Southern California. He would be there for much of the year. And during the feast, he would come up to Jerusalem and there he would stay. And if there was any problems or any sort of rebellion against Rome or anything, they wanted to make sure that they had enough soldiers that were there. So what we want to do is we want to take a census. We want to see how many people are coming into Jerusalem for the feast. Well, what happened was is that the religious leaders come to the Roman authorities and ask them not to directly count the people. Please don't do that. Because what happened a thousand years previously when David directly counted the people, there was this great punishment that was inflicted on the people because of David's senses to see how strong they were. And there's a lesson in that because David was trusting in how many fighting men he had, how strong the nation was and how many people they had, rather than trusting in the Lord who was their strength. Hey, please 
don't count the people. We will provide a number of how many sacrifices we do for Passover, and that will give you a good idea of how many pilgrims come into Jerusalem for Passover. And as you read Josephus, that he tells us that at one particular Passover around this time, there are around 250,000 sheep that were sacrificed. I believe the number I read was 256,000 sheep that were sacrificed. So with the sheep sacrificed for a family, there was certainly at least a million people that came into the city for Passover, perhaps up to 2 million people. And the blood of those sacrifices, produced from those sacrifices, of all those tens of thousands of sheep being sacrificed, the blood would flow down from the Temple Mount area and into that water brook. And the blood would mix with the water in the valley. So they called it the Kidron. They called it the murky, the dark brook. And as the blood of the sacrifices and the water mixed would flow through the valley there. And I just wonder, I just wonder what Jesus thought as he stepped over that brook headed to the garden and he saw the blood and, and the water mingled together because in a few short hours from this time that we're reading about that he steps over that creek, blood mixed with water is going to flow from his side when that Roman soldier thrust that spear into his side as he was pinned to that cross. And just as the blood and the water flowed from the sacrificial lambs at Passover, it will be true for our Passover lamb of God. As Jesus crossed over that brook, I just wonder if he was reminded of David, who centuries previously, he is mentioned as crossing over the brook Kedron, 2 Samuel chapter 15. As he's fleeing from his son Absalom, you might recall, if you're familiar with 2 Samuel 15, that his son Absalom led a rebellion against his father David. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel, is what we read in the scriptures there. And so David, not wanting there to be blood shed there in Jerusalem, he leaves Jerusalem, and it says that he covered his head, and he crossed over to Brook Kedron to the Mount of Olives and out into the wilderness. But they rejected David, and it's going to be in a few short hours that Jesus is going to hear the words of crucify him. Crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us as they reject the Son of God, the greater than David. As he crossed over that brook, he would then begin to make his way up the hill into the garden, as we saw last week, the Garden of Gethsemane, which means oil press. It was a place where the olive trees grew. And, and we have pictures that we've shown you, as there's one, I think, behind me right now of olive trees close to 2,000 years old. And isn't it interesting that, once again, that a garden and trees would play a role in the eternal status of man? You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Jeff? We know the first man was Adam. He was in a garden. He was in the Garden of Eden, where he would eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He rebelled. He sinned against God. And Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. And in Romans chapter 5, we know that he's called that. And now he's in the garden, the garden at Gethsemane, the olive press, the olive trees, where he is obedient to the Father, pressed and crushed, as he will take on the cup of suffering and death, immersed in suffering and of death, 
as he goes to Calvary. And he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And I just wonder, as, as Jesus, as he is in this garden here, what is he thinking? The first garden, Adam would hide from God. In this garden, the last Adam would come to pray to God. In the first garden, Adam was driven out because of his sin, and sin and death would enter into the world. Now the last Adam, Jesus Christ, comes into the garden for the purpose of dying for our sins, to give us life. In the first garden, there was an angel with a flaming sword to keep man out. In this garden, we're going to read that Jesus is going to tell Peter, you put the sword away, for I must go to Calvary. Interesting contrasts and parallels as we read about this. And now as we continue in verse 47, And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas and one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs came from the chief priests and elders of the people. So the disciples he found sleeping right three times. And, and as Jesus sees the, the detachment of troops is what we read in the gospel, 600 troops, Keep in mind, these are temple troops. These are not Roman troops. He's going to be handed over to the Romans the next morning. But these are simple temple troops that serve Caiaphas and the high priest. Also, we know from the Gospels that at one time, the religious leaders sent those soldiers to arrest Jesus when he was teaching in Jerusalem. And they came back without Jesus. And the religious leaders say, why didn't you bring him back to us? And... They said, never before have we heard a man speaketh like this man speaks. He has the words of eternal life. And as they come here, they come to arrest him. They, they, we know that the, the religious leaders, having the break, they were glad when Judas said, I will betray him into your hands. It will be under the cover of night. And the enemy comes to get Jesus. And as we ended last week, I just want to remind you again this week. That we need to understand that the enemy wants us to be sleeping spiritually, to be apathetic, to be lazy, to, to be distracted. I believe there's more distractions in the church today than there has ever been or perhaps in a long, long time, in my lifetime. There are so many distractions right now that take us away from the Lord, our focus on the Lord. So many things that cause us to be, you know, just anxious and and maybe perhaps cause us to be sleepy spiritually. And know this, that in those times that the enemy really likes to take advantage of those times. He is plotting how our enemy, Satan, he's planning and, and how he can get a foothold into our lives. And it's a lot easier for him if we're not alert, we're not discerning, we're not wise, we're not looking, we're not prepared. We're not standing firm in the Lord. But if we are asleep spiritually, apathetic, lethargic spiritually, distracted, whatever the case may be, we're not seeking the Lord, we're not praying, we're not reading our Bibles, we're not in fellowship with other believers. Arise, my betrayers at hand. And Jesus seeing all those soldiers with their torches and swords and clubs and ropes to bind them up. Matthew here tells us it was a great multitude that had come with Judas, Iscariot. John in his gospel says a detachment of troops. Again, that's 600 troops here. And in verse 48, now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one sees him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, friend, 
Why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. So Judas, who had planned with the religious leaders, uh, getting a payoff, 30 pieces of silver, to deliver Jesus into their hands, leading 600 soldiers with weapons and torches, says, I will identify him with a kiss. Kind of interesting to me. Judas did not say, arrest the one who has a halo above his head or a glowing countenance. Isaiah chapter 53 would say of Jesus, he has no splendor or beauty that we should desire him. But I will identify the one that you are to arrest with a kiss. The ultimate act of betrayal. And Jesus in Luke's gospel would say, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? And I believe that Jesus here was given Judas one last chance to repent. And Jesus' response to Judas indicated that he still loved him. Jesus addresses him as friend. I think if I was in Jesus' sandals, if I was in his situation, what would I have done? I would have said, why are you here, you dirty rat? You know, you hypocrite, and kicked him in the shins. I don't know. Why are you here, friend? And I believe that hand of love and is still being reached out. And Judas, if he would have repented, that Jesus would have received that repentance but he never truly repented. He was remorseful, we're going to see, and we'll talk about that next time. But he truly didn't repent. And I kind of just picture with that, the resting soldiers probably pushed Judas out of the way. You've done what you needed to do. And they grabbed Jesus and bind him up to take him away. But verse 51, and suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, we know who this is, right? This is Peter, because the other Gospels tell us. And that he cut off the ear of Malchus, who was the servant of the high priest. And Dr. Luke, being a doctor, tells us that it was his right ear that got cut off. So Peter, in his zeal to show the Lord, I'm still with you, I'm still committed to you, I'm going to be brave for you, I'm going to fight for you, Lord, he takes out his sword, begins to swing it around, and he gets an ear. Now, I think that Peter was probably a better fisherman than he was a swordsman. And I just wonder, what was Peter doing? Was he trying to get Malchus's head, you know, and he missed and he just got the ear and plopped it, went on the ground? And we know from the other Gospels that Jesus reached down and picked up Malchus's right ear and healed it. He put it back on his head. And if Jesus had not have done that, then Peter, he probably would have been arrested at that time. He would have been in big trouble. No telling what would have happened to Peter. But when Jesus healed his ear, there's no evidence, right? So he's healed. And we know that Peter and then all the other disciples begin to, to run away, as uh, we will see that in just a little bit. But Jesus here healing the ear of Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter in verse 52, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? I'm going to die on Passover. The religious leaders are plotting, saying, Not on the feast. To remind you, Jesus again is in control. This detachment or one-tenth of a legion comes, as John's gospel tells us. And it is also interesting that John tells us when they first came, Jesus stepped forward and said, who do you seek? We seek Jesus of Nazareth. He said, here I am. And when he said that, they all fell over backwards. And then he asked them again. 
But he's letting them know here that he's the one that's in control. You guys are not going to take me unless I let you. And now he says to Peter, Peter, put that sword away. Don't you know that I can call down 12 legions of angels? So that's 12 times 6,000. That's 72,000 angels. In 2 Kings chapter 19, you know the story. It tells of how one angel one night wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. That was one angel. Can you imagine 72,000 angels, what they could do? All Jesus had to do is, all he had to do is speak. And I think that as this is going on, as they come to arrest Jesus and they grab him, and then when they begin to beat him, when they begin to flog him, that those angels are, and they pin him to that cross, those angels up in heaven, you know, they got a sword on their side. They're just waiting. They're just, just flinching, man. Just waiting for the word. We're going to go. And Jesus could have simply spoke. He could have destroyed those soldiers. Could have destroyed all of Jerusalem. He could have destroyed the whole world. He was perfectly within his rights as God to do that, but he didn't. Peter put the sword away. Don't you know another gospel tells us that I'm going to take on the cup of suffering and death. I'm going to go to the cross, Peter. Put the sword away. And he didn't call down those angels. And the reason that he didn't was because of you. It was because of you. For the joy that was set before him, he despised the shame. And he endured the cross. And he went because of his love for you. And as he took that cross and he walked through the narrow streets of Jerusalem, to that place of execution, I am thoroughly convinced with all of my heart that he was thinking about you. It was you that was on his heart and on his mind, and because of his love for you, he allowed them to pin him to that cross. And you've heard the saying, it wasn't the nails that kept him up there on that cross, it was his love for you. And as he hung on that cross, he was thinking about you. He knew all about you. He knew when you would be born. He knows all about your life. He knew that you would be here on this Thanksgiving weekend, 2021. And he says to you that I love you so much that I died for you specifically. He died for you because of his love for you. And if you ever doubt the love of God, then look to the cross. Peter put the sword away. I'm going to go to the cross. And it was six months previous that Peter, remember up in Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus first spoke about him being handed over to the religious leaders to be crucified, Peter said, no, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. God forbid. And it was Jesus that said, get behind me, Satan, for you're mindful of the things of man, not of the things of God. I must go to the cross. Because you see, there was a greater problem than anything that existed. Joseph, the Christmas story, Matthew chapter 1, is don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She's going to bring forth a son and call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from, not Rome, not from the religious leaders, not from the political situation, 
not from Pontius Pilate, he will save his people from their sins. And the greatest need of any man or any woman is to be forgiven of sin because we've all sinned and the wages of sin is death. Peter, put the sword away because you're fighting the wrong battle here. You're fighting the wrong battle. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. And Peter, we know that he's doing this. He's trying to defend the Lord. Peter's so determined to show the Lord and show all the other guys, uh, I'm loyal, I'm, I'm strong to the end, Lord. I'll, I'll be with you. But he's doing it out of the flesh. But he's fighting the wrong battle. You know, as I think about, he cut off an ear. I think about how many ears I have cut off. When I was young as a Christian, I thought, man, I'm going to fight for the Lord. I'm going to be like a defense attorney. I'm going to defend you, Lord. And I was always looking for a good argument. You know, I'm going to show them how much I know the scriptures. And we know from Hebrews chapter 4 that the word of God is like a two-edged sword, right? It's alive. It's powerful, piercing the heart. And I'll debate. I'll discuss. I know. I read my Bible. And I'd be looking for a fight. I'd be looking to argue. And the Lord told me one time, stop cutting ears off. Taking your sword and swinging it around and showing people how much you know. Always looking for you know, an argument. And it came at a time, after a while, I realized I'd never argued anybody into the kingdom. I never debated anybody into the kingdom. I find it interesting that the last miracle that Jesus did in bringing healing to something that one of his disciples did, cutting off a ear. I know how to answer that. I'm going to take my sword and I'd be swinging it and plop, plop, plop. I wonder, there are a lot of ears I cut off. And the Lord's behind me trying to fix it. Minister to them in spite of me. You know, I've realized that I don't have to go around in attack mode. We are called to defend the Lord, to give a defense. We're told to give an answer. People have questions. A lot of people have questions today. But you've heard me say this, and I know I'm redundant, but I'm going to say it again. Is that the Lord has shown me, and I hope he's showing us, that people don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. And are we loving people? And we can give them answers. And I invite people, ask those questions. We live in a culture and in a world today, when we were younger, at least when I was younger, that most people went to church. A lot of people did. And they knew something of the Bible. They knew something of the Ten Commandments and all these. You know, it was different back then. Today, there are people that they've never stepped into a church, never read the Bible at all. They don't know anything, and they're so inundated with culture and what culture says. So I don't always have to go into attack mode. I don't always have to be a defense attorney. But I am called to be a witness. And a witness with my words, we speak the truth in love. We don't back down from the truth but also with my life. And as people ask questions, I invite them to ask those questions. 
And if somebody comes along and says, well, the Bible, you can't trust the Bible. You know, it's been changed. It's been written by men. I've had people, I had somebody say that a couple of weeks to me, a, a couple of weeks ago to me. And I said, why do you say that? Um, well, my Uncle George told me that. I say, you know, if you really look into it, you know, this is what the Bible says, and there's really good evidence. We can defend the gospel. We can defend God's word very easily. But it's okay for people to ask those questions. And we can give them an answer and let them know, you know, I really care about you. And we can tell them there's a creator that loves you. And when Jesus took that cross and walked down to Via Della Rosa, the way of sorrows, and out to Damascus Gate, that he did it for you. And to give them a message of hope, a message that will bring light in the darkness, wisdom in the confusion, certainty in the uncertainty, that will bring comfort in all the chaos that is out there. And we can say, you know, I invite people, you know, why do you say that? And a lot of times people just say it because that's what they heard or culture or whatever it is. And we can minister to them in that way. But I pray and hope, I know that when they look at me, they're not going to see perfection. It's far from it. But they see something of the Lord. Something of the countenance of the Lord on my face. That there is peace in my heart. That there's compassion. There are the things of God that are being worked out in my life that I'm not just like the world. People get all kinds of the world all around them. And I pray as they come here that they can get away from the world and that we have a message of love and peace and compassion. Speak the truth in love. Don't back down from the truth. But may you give it to them with a heart that cares. And people know if you care. But we don't have to be looking for a fight. We don't have to dig our spiritual trenches and throw our spiritual grenades. Again, it was recently that I had somebody doing that. And it's like, why? I'm a believer. <laughs> you don't need to do that. But minister to people where they're at. Give them truth. Be patient. Love them. We're here for such a time as this. And all of us, listen, at this Christmas season, we're going to be around people that desperately need to hear the gospel. It's the hope of the world, the only hope of the world. It's not a political party. It's not a political party, folks. Now, the things that are going on around us are very important. They concern me. I understand that. We want to be informed, but our hope is Jesus Christ. Do we understand that? So we got a kingdom coming that's going to last forever. That he will come, born of the virgin, Ahaz, who was running around in Isaiah chapter 7, trying to figure everything out, and God's going to show you a sign that, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And 2,000 years ago, that little baby born, the son of God is so incredible that he would even care about us? Why didn't he just destroy the world? 
after Adam messed up and sinned in the garden, but he didn't. He sent his son so he can have fellowship with you to give you the hope of eternal life and forgiveness of sin through the cross. That's why he's going to the cross. Put it away, Peter. I will take on the cup of suffering and death. And that's the message that we have to give to others. And listen, if you're trying to find satisfaction and fulfillment and real purpose from the world, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find it. Not because Pastor Jeff said so, because that's what the Word of God declares. It's only found through close, intimate fellowship and relationship and knowing Him, the one who loves you so much and died for you, who died for you. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for, Lord, these powerful words that are given to us, this account of Jesus going to the cross, telling Peter to put that sword away. We want to fight the right battle. And, Lord, I just pray that we would be used in these days that we're in to bring a message of hope, the hope of the world, to present people to the light of the world. And, Lord, that we would be ones who would be wise, talking with others, and patient, but truthful. Lord, that people would see something of you being worked out in our lives, being a witness not only with our words, but how we live our lives. So, Lord, I thank you that we can be reminded of these things. Lord, we thank you for the giving of your Son, born of a virgin. His name, Emmanuel, God with us, and he's with us right now in these days that we're in. He's with us during this Christmas season. Father, I just want to pray if there is anyone here, maybe in this sanctuary or out in the coffee shop or perhaps online or listening on the radio later, that you've never made a commitment to Christ. Oh, you're religious. But have you really repented and turned to Jesus? He knows your heart. To turn to him and say, Lord, forgive me, for I have sinned. He hears that prayer. The one who's humble, who comes, calls on the name of the Lord. He will be saved. She will be saved, whoever you are. The greatest need is to be forgiven of sin and recognize that Jesus is Lord because he rose from the grave. And today is the day of salvation. You can come to him sincerely in your heart saying, Jesus, I come and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. Forgive me. And you rose again, and I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for dying for me, for this new beginning, bringing me into the family of God. And I do want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. And for all of us, Lord, this Christmas season, that we would be light. We would be light in the darkness, give wisdom in the confusion, bring peace in the chaos. Lord, give a message of hope, the gospel. That Jesus is truly the reason for this season and why he came. Pray that you bless everyone here. Help us keep a heart of being thankful, a heart of joy and gratitude. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please?